0: things about TV is the theme songs. No, no, don't turn off, lovely listener, this isn't a rerun. I know I've devoted a complete episode to this topic before, so I presume that you, my lovely listener, are aware of my stance on the TV theme tune. But that episode was popular, and in the tried and true tradition of all creatively bankrupt people, when in doubt, do a sequel. One of the things I didn't do last time was pay specific attention to the science fiction and fantasy genre. Most of the teletunes from the last show were all pulse-pounding, hard-driving, tyre-squealing, bombastic epics. But this time, I'll be devoting more attention to some of the more obvious choices, routes I didn't go down last time, as well as, hopefully, throwing a few surprises your way. In some cases, it's not even the theme I'll be playing... Case in point this first track a piece of incidental score from Doctor Who. When David Tennant announced his retirement from the role in 2009 the Who universe was in shock. Tennant a long-time fan of the show was clearly loving every minute of his time as the Time Lord from Gallifrey and the audience loved him from fans to general public. Tennant's time in the TARDIS was the most popular since Tom Baker hung up his multicoloured scarf and the question of how do we top that? crossed the producers' minds. The answer was, we don't. In addition to tenant quitting, the show's production staff pretty much all quit as well. Thus it fell to new producer Stephen Moffat to hand the keys to the TARDIS over to a new actor, an instepped, fearless eccentric Matt Smith. One of the only holdovers from the previous run was composer Murray Gold. Gold had scored every episode of the series since its return in 2005, and one would have forgiven the man if he'd quit as well. Murray didn't do that, though. He used this opportunity to re-energise himself, just as the Time Lord himself had regenerated, and, for Smith's first season, delivered one of the single best TV scores of an episode of science fiction telly in history. The Eleventh Hour has a lot riding on it, but it also had a lot to prove. Smith was up to the task, but crucially, so was gold. The eleventh hour boasts a simply sublime score, but no track became more recognisable than a piece entitled I Am The Doctor. It's a magnificent piece of music, summing up this new Doctor perfectly. Tennant, and the previous incumbent in the role, Christopher Eccleston, had a theme as well, and a fine one it was at that, but this, this is epic. Available on the official BBC soundtrack release here for your listening enjoyment is the complete unedited version. Turn it up loud! presented at all in the last show of these I did, so let's put that right, should we? One of the best things about 60s TV animation, particularly the US stuff that the BBC would use to fill up the holiday schedules, was the themes. Top Cat, altered to Boss Cat in the UK, so as not to have Auntie Beeb inadvertently advertising a popular brand of cat food. The Flintstones, and my next pick, were staples of the British kids' summer holiday. This is one of the catchiest and most memorable animated TV themes in history and has been covered by the likes of Aerosmith, The Ramones and Michael Buble. It's featured in four of the five movies based upon the character in some form or another and it is a magnificent earworm. It is, of course, Paul Francis Webster and Bob Harris's theme to the 1967 animated series Spider-Man. Spider-Man,
1: Spider-Man does whatever a spider can, spins a web, any size, catches thieves, just like guys, Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. Is he strong? Listen, bud, he's got radioactive blood. Can he swing from a thread? Take a look overhead. Hey there, there goes the Spider-Man in the chill of night. The scene of a crime Like a streak of light He arrives just in time Spider-Man, Spider-Man Friendly neighborhood Spider-Man Wealth and fame, he's ignored Action is his reward to him Life is a great big day. Wherever there's a hang-up You'll find a Spider-Man
0: Speaking of animation, this next theme came out of the blue, but rapidly emerged as a favourite. Comics fans are an ornery bunch, by and large, really agreeing on anything, and being more than willing to pick a fight over the most insignificant of details. But one thing we seemingly all agree on is that Batman the Animated Series is the single best distillation of everything that is wonderful about the Dark Knight Opinion seems a little more divided on Superman, the animated series, but for my money, it's just as good, albeit in different ways. But what happens when you put these two great tastes together? Well, nothing if you live in the UK. Batman and Superman both heard as separate shows over here, rarely crossing over in the schedules. But in the United States, it was a different story. The two shows aired in one one-hour block under the title The New Batman Superman Adventures and as such the series was given a spanking new theme by Shirley Walker. I never saw or heard this theme until I bought the DVD sets for both shows and even though it was by accident. See, only the first two volumes of Batman were released in this country so I had to buy all the others, including Superman, on a trip to Florida. Whilst watching an episode randomly one day, I saw a video menu for alternative titles and then watched Dumbfounded as this really rather excellent mixture of these Superman and Batman themes blended together to create something astonishingly unique and fascinating. I think I like this better than either of the themes for the both individual animated series, and I still like them quite a bit. Available on the Superman the Animated Series Special Edition soundtrack, this composition is a great amalgamation of two different philosophies of the characters. submissions last time round, and one that Gene Hendricks was more than happy to pull me up about, was Stu Phillips' score to 70s TV space opera Battlestar Galactica. Essentially aping the success of John Williams' scores for Star Wars, Phillips' sweeping orchestral soundtrack for the show certainly sounded rousing, and felt more expansive than the usual TV fur. From the opening saga cell, there are those who believe life here began out there. To the in-your-face nature of the opening credit theme that manages to capture the glory and grandeur of the mighty Battlestar, the opening is pretty much textbook 70s sci-fi, albeit more entrancing than previous attempts at the genre. But then, Galactica was a big show. The concept was big, the stakes were big, the sets, FX and her were all big, so it makes sense that the music would also be big. And it is. But one of my favourite pieces of the show isn't the theme, excellent though that is. It's the piece that followed the opening. Galactica, as a big show, had a big cast. Far more than could be contained in the usual minutes allotted to an opening credit sequence. To that end, Galactica had an additional opening credit sequence that followed the main theme. Every week, over a beauty shot of the Galactica, the remaining cast members would see their credits roll over a simply gorgeous piece of music. With that in mind, here are both the opening theme, just for Jean, and the incidental music that followed, both available on Intrada's magnificently comprehensive CD sets, of which there are currently three volumes. space now for Barry Gray's superior slice of symphonic disco. Starting out with a straight-up science fiction fanfare, the theme to Space 1999 then becomes an ABBA-esque disco beat, which sums up the show pretty perfectly. Space 1999 tried very much to be a serious science fiction drama series with metaphysical plots and gorgeous hardware, but when the cast are saddled with floors as wide as manhole covers and beige as far as the eye can see, there's a bit of a disconnect. The viewer would have probably taken it as seriously as the cast... ...if they all didn't look like they'd stepped off the set of a Pants People video. Still, Barry Gray was to producer Jerry Anderson... ...what John Barry was to the early James Bond flex. And along with the hardware... It's Grey's work people remember fondly from Anderson's shows. From the famous Thunderbirds countdown to the balladry of Stingray, Barry Gray captured the attention of the viewer instantly with his rousing and memorable theme tunes. Space 1999 is available on numerous compilation albums, but there is an official Fanderson fan club release that includes the original version. of brothers who were lost in space to another, this time a family of explorers, one stowaway and one robot, imaginatively named Robot. The Robinson clan plus Dr. Smith and the robot explored space, or one particular planet anyway, for three seasons in the late 1960s. The early black-and-white shows are actually quite good, evoking memories of the 1940s serials, but despite these August beginnings, the series quickly descended into camp stupidity, with Jonathan Harris as Dr Smith and a young Billy Mooney as Will Robinson becoming the stars of the show and getting into ridiculous scrape after ridiculous scrape. For the first two seasons, this was accompanied by an electronic blippity-blip type theme that was more cartoony, odd given that for the first season at least the show was relatively serious. By season three, a budget infusion meant a new theme was created by composer John Williams. This one was more adventurous and exciting and prefigured Williams' work on Star Wars, but sounded nothing like that. It's a, an upbeat theme and suits the show much better than that from the first two seasons. <laughs> the best rip-off of Deep Space Nine on television, was J. Michael Straczynski's novel for TV, that, for its first four seasons at least, managed to beat Star Trek at its own game. Starting off with most of the major plot beats in place, Babylon 5 was a space station at the edge of the galaxy, a port of call for all manner of weirdos, both human and alien, and gatekeeper to the Jump Gate, which allowed access to far-off regions. Not afraid to tackle taboo subjects, Babylon 5 was light years ahead of its time, from its interconnected and complex plotline to its tackling of issues such as drug abuse and torture. It was the precursor to many a show on TV today. It had a limited budget, but the characters made up for it, especially Jakarta and Londo, and it made a noble attempt to include real science in the show, something that was appreciated by its viewers. Its fully computer-generated effects were noteworthy, and whilst the series stumbled in its final year, it remains a superior slice of space opera. One of the best things about B5 was its score by Tangerine Dream member Christoph Frank. The nature of Babylon 5's story arc meant the series evolved each year, and its theme and opening narration changed to reflect the changing storyline, but I always had a soft spot for the first year of the show in terms of its theme music. Here is that theme from the official soundtrack release. sci-fi show of the early 1960s has about as much in common with Lost in Space as the Cardassians do with intelligent television. A cracking and diverse anthology show, the Twilight Zone's theme has become synonymous with creepy goings-on and weirdness. It does what a great theme tune should do. It makes you rush in from the kitchen as your show starts. I remember watching the Zone in repeats in the early 1980s late night on Channel 4 and at that point it had lost none of its power or ability to shock It shows its age a bit today, but that's because it's been ripped off so much. But this theme, available on many a compilation album, still packs a punch. Scores to series now rather than the theme itself. It's not that there's anything wrong with the theme to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, there isn't at all. It actually does what a proper theme tune should do. It starts off all somber with an organ before becoming more rocky indie guitar based. This quick change from a maudlin, more proper effort to an iconoclastic garage band sound encapsulated the show and its genre bending and expectation shifting. Buffy was the first of the WB teen show genre that intermingled teen angst with indie cred, a style duplicated with varying degrees of success in Smallville, Dawson's Creek, Roswell and Charmed. The incidental score, however, was often just as good. Whilst the first season is pretty generic, by season two, Christoph Beck came aboard, and his music tracked some of the series' best story arcs and episodes, from the arrival of Spike and Drew, the re-emerging of Angelus and the Faith Mayer plotline, and, of course, the infamous silent episode, Hush. By the end of season four, however, Beck had moved on, and apart from returning to score the final episode of season five, the series would again be scored by different composers until, in season seven, the producers had settled on Robert Duncan. Duncan had one of the bigger story arcs to work on, the first evil and its return to Sunnydale. To be honest, this story was a tad more ambitious than the show could afford, but all the stops were pulled out when the series announced it was concluding at the end of its seventh year. Duncan delivered an epic score for the final episode, very influenced by Howard Shore's work on the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but sweeping and expansive and intriguing in its own right. This track, which accompanied the final battle and the last scenes of the last episode, is entitled Chosen, and although it has never been released commercially, Duncan released it on his website shortly after the last episode originally aired in 2003. No themes and soundtrack collection I put together is complete without something by Sylvester Leve and his simply superb soundtrack to Erwulf. Whilst the title theme was on the last of these episodes I did, this track is more melancholy. Don Belisario's heroes tended to be quite musically inclined. Thomas Magnum played the sax, and stringfellow Hawke serenaded the eagle with his cello that flew around his cabin. The music for serenading the eagle walls for a long time thought to be an actual classical piece, until it turned out it was original to the series. And it makes one wonder if, in terms of that series, did Hawke compose this piece himself? As Hawke's antisocial tendencies were phased out as the series went along, so too was his way with the bow. Real men don't play haunting classical pieces on a cello, at least not according to CBS television, and they certainly don't commune with nature. As such, this piece was only heard a few times after the pilot, but it is a piece of music I find evocative, provocative, and frankly, simply gorgeous. on network television. The opening credit sequence started getting shorter and shorter. To that end, it's hard to find an opening to a network show post-2000 that managed to have a cheerful little ditty as its opener. Step up, Joss Whedon, who, along with Sonny Rhodes, composed The Ballad of Serenity, a cheerful battle cry of a song that opened Whedon's sci-fi cowboy space opera, Firefly. Missing elements of southern rockabilly, civil war balladeering and protest song, The Ballad of Serenity manages to accomplish the goals of a great TV theme in a little over 50 seconds. It manages to set up series lead Mal Reynard's ornery nature and non-conformist attitude, as well as just generally being hummable and pleasant. Firefly had an official soundtrack release that mostly consisted of the score by A Man Whose Name Escapes Me, which embarrasses me. It'll come back to me later. But it's available and it's out there. There are also many filk versions, one of the most notable being by Escape Key, which uses the opening theme merely as its chorus and creates three additional passages to go with it, turning it into a three-minute rock ballad.
1: Take my love, take my land, take me where I stand. I don't care, I'm still free. You can't take the sky from me. Tell them I ain't coming back Burn the land and boil the sea You can't take the sky from me There's no place I can be Since I found serenity
0: but You can't take the
1: sky from me
0: great things about science fiction is it can take its inspiration from any and all musical genres, even disco. Whilst the music of the 90s Star Trek series tended towards the resolutely bland, the 70s had a tad more imagination, as long as the imagination was being provided by ABBA. As such, for reasons known only to the producers, it was decided that Buck Rogers would bring to the 25th century not only a disdain for the computer-controlled environment, but also a dislike for the computer synth music the future people seemed to dig. Why this all-American hero wasn't more into rock or jazz or even country wasn't adequately explained, as within the show's own continuity, he came from the then-future, 1987. Nevertheless, our space hero seemed to groove more to the tunes of Boney M and Cool and the gang, and as such, his theme is very much of its time. Still pretty funky, though. Again, Intrada has released two volumes of the Buck Rogers score by Stu Phillips, and both are well worth picking up if you like a little bit of funk and wagnalls. with a new entry into the TV theme stakes and a marked contrast to the last one. Ramin Dwardy's theme for Game of Thrones is unusual for a fantasy show. Gone are the clanad like horns and flutes and ethereal vocals of standard fur and in was a more sweeping and epic score perfectly in keeping with the show and its tone. It manages to be both epic and intimate which is a lot harder than one would think to pull off. Game of Thrones is a great show from the get-go, and one that has consistently improved upon that greatness, and the theme is accompanied by a rather impressive title sequence, essentially the map of the mythical world that would be in front of the books. Duarte's biggest success, though, is that the theme has been covered in a variety of different styles, from the Queen's Guard to Lindsay Stirling, and all of them have worked. It's a flexible piece of music that can be reinterpreted many different ways, and still be enjoyable. Game of Thrones, as of this recording, has had four soundtrack albums released and on each one the opening theme appears. Tronica now, Stu Phillips makes a comeback with the theme for Knight Rider. Perfectly encapsulating the idea of the futuristic talking car and the wonderment that is the career that is David Hasselhoff, the theme from Knight Rider is quite frankly brilliant. It must be because it's been sampled by any number of rap artists for their records. A Night Rider soundtrack was released back in the day with this official version on it, but it's available in tons of places, and you shouldn't have to struggle too hard to find it. shows can be bombastic, campy, silly or epic. Really are they intimate, moving and ultimately quite sad. One of the enduring memories of the Incredible Hulk that I have from childhood is my nan, who I would watch it with every week, always bemoaning how downbeat the ending was. Every week she would do this. And it's a fair comment. Of all the action-adventure shows airing at that time, none of them had the all-pervading feeling of melancholy provided by the images of Dr David Bruce Banner, the redoubtable Bill Bixby, picking up his bottomless brown bag and wandering alone down the loneliest American highway he could find to the mournful piano noodlings of Joe Harnell. It's a remarkable testament to the piece that it is so fondly remembered in a show about a man who turns into a big green rage monster... It's still a part of pop culture, with its inclusion in the Hulk movie from 2008 being a crowd-pleasing moment, and it has achieved one of the ultimate 21st century accolades, a spoof on Family Guy. Joe has released a number of official soundtrack albums through his website, and they're all worth checking out. second live-action superhero show to make the list has just been undergoing a reappraisal and re-evaluation, thanks to a recent reboot. The Flash erred on one season back in 1990 and was incredibly expensive and didn't pull in the ratings, and so sped off our TV screens as quickly as it sped on. Over the years, though, the series has picked up a loyal cult following, both with those of us that saw it on first run and those that discovered it later on DVD and been quite surprised that it's really quite good. It's heavily inspired by the Batman movie of 1989 and comes as no surprise that Danny Elfman, composer of the score to that film, was approached to score this TV adaptation. It's familiar to his Batman theme, to the point where whilst humming it one can mistake the two, but it's memorable in its own right. Composer for the series Shirley Walker would use elements of this score when The Flash appeared on Superman the Animated Series and an official release was made available not long ago. final superhero show, and the final tune today. A couple of minutes ago I mentioned the different ways superhero themes can go, and camp was one of them. This is gloriously camp. The lyrics are unashamedly silly, there is a bouncy, almost childlike nursery rhyme quality to it, and yet it's infectiously catchy, and you find yourself singing along with it within seconds of its starting. Don those satin tights, and fight for our rights. You're a wonder, wonder woman. It's available on DC Comics' 75 Years CD album that came out a couple of years ago.
1: Wonder Woman Wonder Woman All the world is waiting for you And the power you possess In your satin tights Fighting for your rights And the old red. white The Honking
0: enjoyed that second troll through TV theme tunes. Next time I may do sitcoms, then again, maybe I won't. Who knows? It's all in the lap of the gods. Let's cover some emails. The only Starfighter is the first one from Chris Franklin. Hello Andy and Scott, if Scott's listening. The Last Starfighter is one of those weird blank spots in my brain. I can never recall if I saw it or not, based on your synopsis and playing the theme. I think I did see this way back in the 80s. Usually I'd remember something like this, but my friends and I rented a lot of movies, and occasionally one would fall victim to one of us getting bored and talking through it, which would lead to us to arguing, and we continued to fuss whilst the movie played, so we wouldn't get to watch it. I kind of feel like this is what happened here, as much of what you talked about did seem familiar. Now I'm going to have to go and track down a copy and see for myself. There were toys in development from this movie, however, but they sadly never made it into development. And Chris has put a link here to the plaidstallions.com backslash galoob backslash last.html webpage that that tells us all about the plans for the uh, toys. Always great to hear from Scott. I agree. I I always like talking to Scott. And Earning My Ears is a fantastic show. The only downside is it makes me long to return to Disney World. I think they must sneak a bonus into Scott's (laughs) cheque. Well, if that's true, I hope he can get us to go for free. That would be lovely. Thank you, Chris. Scott and I had a ball with that one. And uh, I do have a couple of ideas for bringing Scott back. So hopefully we can make that happen over summer. Gene Hendrix emailed in. Andrew, you've done it again, sir. You've gone and covered a favourite movie of mine without my asking you to. I suppose you probably guessed that I love the movie from the fact that the theme to the Quantum Cast, available on 2 True Freaks, is the Last Starfighter theme. At least I hope that's it. I would hate to think that I have drones following me. One of the things that I love about this movie is that it shows that a kid who isn't well off can still possess skills that are useful, even if no one else thinks he does. I could see Alex in the real world trying out for a spot in the military and becoming a top fighter pilot. Humble beginnings do not always mean a humble life, as Santori's line states. I have two of three issues of the comic adaptation, and it's alright. Not great, not horrible. I was not aware there was a novelisation of it, though. That's something I'm going to have to hunt down along with the novelisation to Star Trek, the motion picture that Scott and I talked about on our episode of the Hammer Podcasts, also available on Two True Freaks. As to sequels remake possibilities, I'm of two minds. If the writer and rights holder is heavily involved, then I'd be tentatively up for such a thing. Other than that, I think I'd rather leave it alone. It's such a good movie, I'd hate to have it sullied by less than stellar new versions. Gene from Florence, New Jersey. P.S. I suppose if your brain scans on me are accurate, you'll be covering the sword and the sorcerer or booker Banzai next. Gene is host of the Hammer Strikes, the Hammer Podcasts, the Quantum Cast, Anime Freaks, and numerous other things. There's a blog spot, a Hammer Strikes blog spot as well, because Gene obviously has a lot of free time. Um, I don't know about The Sword and the Sorcerer, but I'm sorry I find Bookeru Banzai a little bit too... like it's trying too hard to be wacky, and as such I never really got into it. I like the cast a great deal. And there are some very very funny lines like the, the what's his name monkey boy one And but it's, as a film I don't really feel it holds up but by all means you do one and I'll listen to it and maybe you'll change my mind Tom Paneris has emailed in and that uh, you either have really good timing or access to my Netflix account well if Gene thinks I have good timing and you think I have good timing then I, I must have good timing Tom continues Not two weeks before you released your episode about The Last Starfighter I had rented the Blu-ray and watched it for the first time since the days when I would repeatedly rent it from my local video show in the mid-80s. I also had the kids' storybook which was a retelling of the story with stills from the movie something that was sadly lost to the charity pile years ago. I probably could get it on eBay if I wanted to spend the money. Same with the poster which I might definitely seek out one day. I was so pleased to see this movie holds up so well after 31 years. I guess it's because the plot is so simply great and could work nowadays. An alien race creates a video game as a backdoor military recruiting programme. I also personally like how the film is not as self-aware as many modern day science fiction movies would tend to get, especially through the 90s. It always seemed to me that Alex Rogan took a while to figure out what he was doing, or to actually want to fight, instead of the more modern day fish-out-of-water science fiction movies, where it seems that the main character is a total badass expert by the end of the movie. Alice is an expert starfighter by the end, yes, but he still seems to have the attitude of, I don't know how I pulled that off, instead of being able to walk coolly through life wearing Prada and pulling things out of mid-air. Yes, I'm looking at you, Neo. You guys mentioned how you thought the biggest misstep of the film is that Centauri is brought back at the end. I agree and will add that my only other gripe with the film is it's not long enough. This clocks in at about an hour and 40 minutes, which was the average running time for a comedy in the 1980s, and I think it could have benefited from at least 20 more minutes to flesh out some character. Anyway, you and Scott had a discussion in which I wanted to eagerly join in, as is always the case in Palace. Thank you for a great episode. Best, Tom. And Tom Panaris does... He kind of does a show that is almost a spiritual brother to this one, Pop Culture Affidavit. And by that, I mean we don't ever cover the same stuff... We come at it from completely different angles, but we kind of cover. Just, it's not the same, but we kind of cover things in the same manner. This has been called a nostalgia podcast, and that's kind of what it is. T- Tom, Tom doesn't cover as much science fiction and genre as I do, although I would love him to. But it, it kind of works. I do the last stuff. I he does clerks. So if you're not listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, I uh, urge you to check it out because it's really quite brilliant. P.S. Oh, Tom has a P.S. I'm not the only person who had a crush on Catherine Murray-Stewart, which went along with my crush on Leah Thompson. And I'm not ashamed to admit that I've seen Weekend at Bernie's. In fact, not only have I seen the movie, I have it on VHS and did a commentary for it a couple of years ago for Pop Culture Affidavit, where I basically called it the Great Gatsby of the 1980s. Well, I've never seen it, so I can't comment on whether it's the Great Gatsby for the 1980s or not. Thank you, everybody, who emailed in. And once again, a big thanks to Scott Gardner for dropping by for the last Starfighter show. And uh, thank you to Michael Bailey and Bill Robinson and Sean Engel and Paul Spitaro and Chris Franklin, all of whom have been guests on this show so far in what I think has been roughly its first year or so. That seems about right. Uh, I'm hoping to have some more on as we go along. I'm just trying to percolate some ideas and see who would be interested in talking to me about them. We'll see how that goes. I'm going to close out with another theme that wasn't included on the list this time, but let's be honest, you knew it was coming. See you next time. Bye bye.